podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. That were the words we don't want to finish in the Champions League. But every time it was going wrong, we just kept turning around and blaming the coaches. He literally gets what he wants and whatever he says goes. Um, and, we, and we ended up getting relegated that year, which I think was down to you know what was in that dressing room at the time. Well, it was really Sky that put an end to that. They may not have handled it very well. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off, as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the Best Equality in Social Sports Podcast. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Tenderwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic range of opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional fo- uh, footballer. He played for Celtic, Arsenal and Scotland as well as working in the media. Welcome to the podcast, Charlie Nicholas. Nice to be here. We'd like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready? Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Uh, the most pers- famous person in my phone book is King Kerry Uh Obviously, great Celtic player. Probably, you know, one of the greatest ever, if not, in my opinion, the greatest ever uh, Liverpool player and Scotland player. Uh, so he is probably the most famous, and I'm delighted to say he's still my hero. If you could trade lights with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? If I could do anything with great sportsmen or, or anyone, oh, there's so many the heroes that I've met throughout my, my life, but I think if I could get one, it would be playing golf with Jack Nicholas. Thank you for... Answering those questions, let's chat about your career. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a footballer? Well, uh, the first thing is, yes, I did always want to be a footballer. I was a Glasgow Celtic fan. I was very fortunate. I was five or six years of age that Celtic were the first ever British team to win the European Cup which it was called then and now the Champions League. Uh, we also made the final in 1970, but we lost that to Feyenoord of, of Holland. Uh, so we were brought up with the team called the famous Lisbon Lions. And then after that, when I was about 9, 10, I, I was going regular to watch Celtic with my father. And actually, Andy Robertson of Liverpool's father was my best mate. So we used to go to the games together. And then we watched the likes of my hero, King Kenny Douglish, Danny McGrain of Celtic. So that was always my upbringing of what I wanted to do and support. And I always wanted to be a footballer. And I gradually joined a Celtic youth team, our Celtic Boys Club. And I started to advance through schoolboys, under 13s, under 14s, 
until under 15s, then I started to go on tour a little bit. So I went on tour to Ipswich, who played under the famous Bobby Robson and became a great side. And also went to Wolverhampton Wanderers, which was a, quite an education. And they just won one of the Cups. And uh, Sammy Chung was the manager there. Andy Gray was a Scotsman there. <clears throat> Kenny Hibbert was a famous player. So I had a great time also at Wolverhampton. But I ended up going home and signing for Glasgow Celtic. You you signed you signed for Celtic Celtic in nineteen seventy nine. How did that felt? It was a dream come true because I was offered a apprenticeships at both Wolves and obviously at Ipswich. But Jock Steen was retired, and he was a he was a genius of a of a manager at Celtic. And he asked me to come back home and sign schoolboy forms. I still had six months left at, at high school. And I ended up signing for Celtic, training two nights a week and playing in their, their youth team. Uh, so when I signed for the, the full time, I went on to the, uh, be an apprentice. I cleaned the boots. I cleaned the stadium as in sweeping terraces, which you don't tend to do now. And that was part of my education until I, I made the first team quite quickly at 16 and a half, 17. And it was actually a dream come true when your your family, your friends are all Celtic supporters and they're actually watching you wearing the hoops of, of the green and white hoops of Celtic. It's quite a, a dramatic experience. And it was, uh, it was one of the all-time greatest experiences I've ever had. You scored on a debut against Queen's Park. What do you remember about your debut? Well, that that was in what we would call the Glasgow Cup, and there's five teams in Glasgow, so it wasn't a a big, glamorous competition. But what I do remember is that uh, against Queens Park, they they originally played at the National Stadium of Hamden, but there was only about five thousand people who turned up for the game on the night, and it tended to be not the strongest first team that Celtic would play, but just scoring the goal. What I do remember is making my debut alongside my next-door neighbour at Mary Hill, who was a guy called James Duffy, who actually worked at Chelsea with Gianluca Vialli and became a manager up in Scotland to a few different clubs. We, had, we made our debut at the same time, and he was a great, great pal of mine. And uh, because I'd scored my debut, it was quite memorable. I always remember my father, uh, who was a night shift worker in the newspaper industry, uh, waking me up when he got back about four in the morning just to see how pleased he was. So it was quite an eye-catching. And I think it was the first time I actually felt that, not that I had made the grade, but I had an opportunity to be a very decent player, a, a very decent footballer. What was football like in Scotland in the 80s? It was probably the best it's been. Uh, it was quite... Very physical. I mean, Scottish football is still very physical compared to, like, the top leagues in England, as in the Premier League. Uh, but obviously the referees are a bit softer now. VAR comes into play uh, and they're protected a lot more now. Back then, it was quite very physical. I used to take a lot of challenges from... the. It used to be a challenge you could challenge from the, the back. So, like, my calves and things would get a lot, lot of punishment. Uh protection was tough and you were playing against older experienced players who kind of wanted to bully you a little bit but that was part of the education and learning the game uh, but at that time 
Dundee United had the best ever team in their history through a manager called Jim McLean. They ended up winning the title. Uh, Aberdeen under Alex Ferguson was the greatest Aberdeen team of all time. And they ended up obviously winning the European Cup Winners' Cup in a few of the leagues. But at Celtic, Rangers weren't as strong then, but they were still a big club. And at Celtic, we had a very good young side. And we were competing well in Europe, beating Juventus and Ajax. And we won the league in two occasions out of the three that I was there. So it was a very tough time, but it was a really high standard time. We were all doing quite well in Europe, which was different from, is a little bit different from now. So it was a great learning curve. It was actually a very exciting time to play uh, in Scotland at that time because it was a big challenge. What is it like to play in a... Glasgow. Glasgow. Derby. Derby. <coughs> well, you know, this is a, the, the toughest one to ever kind of break down for, for people who have never been. Because the Glasgow Derby, obviously I'm a Celtic fan. And a lot of my friends, when I was brought brought up in Glasgow, were Rangers fans. So three of us would maybe travel on the bus and the other three would come with us. But you'd maybe only get halfway and then they had to go to the other end of the ground. So they would have to find a different route. But we wouldn't talk to them for about two days afterwards because the passion, the commitment. You were friends before, but never until about two days after it. You hated losing because it was all about bragging rights. But our Glasgow Derby is actually more famous for things that are not well regarded as in religious bigotry, hatred. But, you know, sometimes these things are meaningful in terms of it does make it quite unique. You know, like the Real Madrid and Barcelona El Clasicos, they're not derbies, but they like to call them the El Clasico. I've been to Liverpool, Everton. Derbies are played in London, Derbies, Arsenal, Spurs. And I, I find them fascinating, but Glasgow is quite different. If you were standing five yards away from your teammate, be it at Celtic Park or at Ibrox, you could hardly even hear what they were they were talking to you about. You were just on your own and you had to just dig in and try and get through. If you if you lost, and I didn't lose many. You wouldn't go out for about five, six days until the next game. But if you won, even then you had to be a little bit careful where you were going and what you were doing. But the passion, the commitment, the noise, the nerves, everything that is magical about this event. And that's why they're not always the greatest technical games to watch, as in skillful. But there's always absolutely amazing drama because the crowd are are, are so into it in a massive, massive way. It is quite unique. It's the strangest feeling. And I would say to anybody out there, if you've never had the opportunity and someone wants to offer you a chance to go, don't miss it. Take the opportunity. Charlie, is it the best derby in British football, in your opinion? <clears throat> yes, I, I think I think with, without it is. As I say, I followed Liverpool for a little while, watching a lot of their games. I played in the London Derby, which was enjoyable. I've also went to, you know, many different derbies. I've been to the, the Italy games with, with both Milan sides. But in the UK, yes, I think the only game in, in Britain that actually comes close to it now, and it may be just dropping a little bit, is Manchester United-Liverpool. I think that's the, the most intriguing game I always found because of the passion between the two clubs. 
But Celtic and Rangers is, is above that again, in my opinion. And I think when you listen to people who are played in them, like Kenny Dalglish, like Graham Souness, have went and played massive games for Liverpool, and they'll tell you the same thing. They are quite unbelievable. I think it is by far the biggest derby in the UK. Um, I imagine in the 80s that Glasgow derby was a very hostile game. What was it like to play away at uh, Ibrox? Well, th- that was hard because you... In those days, it's changed a little bit now because the Donnelly Rangers have caused the problem by only letting Celtic have 900 fans in. When in, in my day in the 80s, we could at least get one end, so you would have at least seven, 8,000 people there representing the Celtic fans. The Rangers at Celtic Park would probably get as many as 20,000 in one big end because it was an old-fashioned stadium then. But when we went to Ibrox, you had to leave, be there about three hours before kickoff. You were police escorted in. You were absolutely abused verbally as you came off the bus. And it was only a 10-yard walk into the door. But that was the preparation you got used to. And some people liked them and some people can adapt to them. But I think you learn a great deal about yourself when you're able to. My debut in the first one at Ibrox was really poor. I get caught up in the emotions of it and I couldn't really get going at all. It was it was just a little bit too much for me. I was 17, I think, at the time. And it was only, but it's, later on, I became very, very adjusted to it. But my first one was not very pleasant. We lost and I was substituted. But uh, after that, once you understand what it means and how you're supposed to handle it, it's a wonderful building of making you stronger, testing you mentally, but it is quite fearsome. You broke your leg in 1982 and missed the season. What are your memories of that? And did that injury affect your career? Well, and, and yeah, in fact, back then, it was always a concern because if you had a broken leg, it was quite a long way back because at that time, like modern day players may get like a small pin and nuts and bolts that kind of hold the bone together and it doesn't really affect your muscles too much. But we had the old-fashioned, what we called the, the full leg plaster. And uh, I had to have that on for like five months. Uh, we didn't really have personal physios or fitness gurus. It was just a, a physiotherapist we had who had to treat everybody. It was it was scary at the time because it, I snapped my shin bone in both and it was a spiral break. And sometimes they can take a little bit of time to heal or they can just slightly go in a, a fraction off and it takes longer to, to, to heal. And they were also, at the time, uh, career-threatening. So because I was so young, it wasn't so bad. Uh, but mentally, it took me about a month to overcome it. Uh, I didn't have much that I could do physically to keep myself going. But once the pain dies down after about three months, sorry, three weeks, four weeks, and then you start putting your weight on it a little bit with your with your your crutches, uh, it becomes something that you just have to get used to. Because I was, I was 18, 19, I think then physically I knew I could still get stronger and get back to it. It was a big concern for about a month. But after that, and then the only slight issue I had after about four or five months 
was I was getting close to being fit again. But I had a bad limp, and it took me about another two or three months to actually overcome the limp, which is a part of your muscle building, predominantly in the calf area. So it, it was scary, but I came back very, very fit. Uh, I I grown quite quite well as and uh, also stretched a little bit uh, height wise and muscle wise, and I came back and scored a lot of goals. So I actually became better for it in the long term than I, I probably would have done if I wouldn't have had that break, and also a lot mentally tougher and appreciating that when you're out there, you have to go and enjoy it, you have to embrace it, and you have to try and fulfil what you're trying to do. So it was a hard case for a, a small period of time, but it was a learning curve and certainly helped me, I think, push on. Uh, in in, 19, in 1982, you played in Europe against Ajax. What was it like to play against the likes of Johan Cruyff? And yeah. didn't he speak to you after the game? Yeah, well, we, we, we played Ajax in the first leg at Celtic Park. And... Some of you guys are probably just a bit young to remember some of the names, but they had a wonderful team. And Johan Cruyff was, in my opinion, one of the greatest all-time players, uh, not just in Europe, but in world football. He was a game-changer. He could do the Cruyff turn uh, that no one had ever seen before. He was fast. He was athletic. He took a lot of physical uh, abuse, but he was just a magical guy to watch. And he was... 35, 36 when I think he played against us and we drew 2-2 in Glasgow and if I'm being honest they probably should have beat us about 6-4 that night, they were fabulous they were one of the best teams I'd ever played against and he was absolutely breathtakingly good and then we beat them 2-1 in Ajax and the last kick of the ball uh, but Croy came off injured with about 20 minutes to go because we had to, we had to try and confront him uh, physically to try and keep them quiet. But after the game, yes, we, we got through that, that game and we were walking around the old stadium when I heard my name getting shouted out and it was just a door that was open and he was on he was on one of the tables getting treatment for his injury and he just said, Nicholas, uh, I wish he's well in the next round, although we should, we should have beat you. And it, it gave me his top and I thought, oh, wow, I've just got the magical number 14. So I went into the dressing room. The guys were all scared to ask each other who had the number 14. And at that time, they had Jesper Olsen, who joined Manchester United later, uh, Jan Moby, who came to Liverpool later. Uh, Van Basten was actually on the bench. He was a, a bit younger than me. And I thought I had it until my teammate, George McCluskey, showed off the number 14. And I opened up my shirt to really get confirmation, hoping it might have been two 14s and it was number 99 on it. So I was so disappointed <laughs> that it wasn't his top. But just the fact that he said something to me was quite a magical moment. He was one of my all-time greats. I want to ask you about possibly the greatest goal ever scored. It was against Ajax. You chid the goalkeeper. Can you tell us about that goal? Yes, and in the build-up to the game, it was the old uh, Amsterdam Arena that we played in. It was not a particularly pleasant old stadium. Uh, I think we had about 15,000 15, Celtic fans. We always got big numbers travelled. 
And in all honesty, 2-2, we probably thought we were halfway out the competition anyway. So we had nothing to lose. But we were warming up uh, in front of the Celtic fans. And it was quite a miserable night. And Pat Bonner, who's my great friend, was our, our goalkeeper at the time, the Irish International. And Pat was, what, he's six foot two. And I kept saying to him, there's a slight uh, angle, the way that the goal was sitting, as if it was kind of slightly raised behind the goal. And it looked as if it was maybe just an extra inch above uh, a certain uh, angle. And he said to me that, he said, in a certain way, he said, the Ajax goalkeeper is actually very small. He said, so I could actually see where you're coming from. So I always had it in my head between myself and Pat that what he was saying to me, I've had a, an opportunity that I, I would try and get an opportunity to chip the goalkeeper if it ever materialised. Now, for people who can remember the Archie Gamel goal for Scotland against Holland way back in the World Cup, uh, I think it was 82 in Spain, it was probably the greatest ever Scotland goal. It was not as good as that, but it was a little bit like that. I had a, a kind of a little couple of nutmegs through, and then suddenly I had the goalkeeper to beat from about 15 yards. It's, I don't know why. It's an instinctive thing. I don't honestly don't have the answer, but it's probably the chat, and I just instinctively chipped the keeper. And as soon as I chipped it, I knew that he couldn't catch it. It was going over him. I knew it was going in the net. It was absolutely perfect. And that was probably, some people have said I scored a great goal for Scotland in my debut against Switzerland. But the goal against Ajax is my favourite all-time goal. It always stands out for me, probably because we won and probably because it was against Johan Cruyff's side. You, you were described by many as the greatest player to come out of Scotland since Kenny Dalglish, is it? Yeah. Um, did you feel pressure from people around you? Yes, I, I did. Uh, in Scotland, even the newspaper guys, uh, it's so different now. You know, you know, players have to be careful where they go, what they do. Our, our life was playing a bit of golf in my spare time. We were allowed out for a couple of beers. And that was your kind of social activity, really. And you did a lot of functions and charity work, which was representing a kind of ambassadorial role for, for Celtic, if you like. But very quickly, I wasn't trying to be someone special. I was only trying to be a good footballer and try and get into Celtic's first team. But because I was probably a bit younger, as in 16, 17, all my mates had an earring. They wore no socks. They wore young guys' clothes. But because I was a footballer, some of the press either liked it or didn't like it. The ones who liked it wanted to portray it and talk about it. And that just became part of, you know, what what I was and how they, they wanted to perceive me. Uh, I didn't think it was any different from any guy at 17 or 18. But they quite liked us. And as I say, some didn't. So it was all, I used to get followed quite a lot. I used to get a lot of strong mail in terms of fans. Uh, you know, I remember one day coming out of Hampton Park and I was playing a charity at a knockout, which was a, a good fun sports event that we used to do and being mobbed by about 30, 40 young girls. Uh, and actually 
you know, managed to get uh, had a, what I felt was wanted a, a nice jacket and had a belt on the jacket and they managed to take the belt off and I had to scramble back into Hampton Park because these girls were giving me a, and I thought I thought I couldn't understand what was going on. And then so I think pressure like that starts to build because you have to be careful where you're going, who you're talking to, how you're saying things. Uh, and I found that quite difficult. I just wanted to be myself. Uh, but when I got to later on, when I was probably in 83, moving on to Arsenal, it became even a greater burden. But at that time, I think I still quite enjoyed it, but I couldn't quite understand what was going on. It was very confusing for me. In the 1982-83 to 83 season, you scored 48 goals. Is this your greatest season and were you... And when you were at your best? Yes. Unfortunately, yes, it, it was the case. I probably had my best days when I was younger. People now, I think, get to 24, 23, maybe to 20, and that tends to be your perfect times. I think it's part of the cleverness of modern-day football where you've got fitness gurus, you've got dietitians, you're, you're understanding what you need to be committed to to be the professional footballer that people expect of you. We didn't really have that. We weren't educated in that side of it. There was no one to teach us. Uh, there was no one to advise us too much on that type of thing. But, yeah, during, during that period, this was my real comeback from the broken leg. And as I say, I got quite strong, a lot stronger. Uh, and because I was working harder, I think my confidence came back quite rapidly. But sometimes this amazing thing happens to you and sometimes it can happen when you're young or sometimes that happens to players probably a lot longer than it did to me or later on in their careers. But you just feel as if every time you go out in the park, it's going to be a good day. You just think you're going to score all the time or you're at least going to get lots of chances. Your team's going to win. And you just feel that there's there's nothing ever going to, going to stop you. Sure, there will be one or two awkward days and days that don't go right. But predominantly, you have such confidence, such belief. And that was the period of time I had that. I uh, didn't think I was over-the-top arrogant about it. It's just what it was. It just felt perfectly for me. There is a lot, lot of luck involved in it. Uh, absolutely no doubt about that, that things go well at the right times. But there's, you'll hear a lot of people talk, even in the modern day, about momentum and confidence. And people who score goals, if you've got confidence... It's just the most fantastic gift to have because your, your teammates believe in you. They think they can give you the ball and something magical might happen. It might be a goal. It might be an assist. And when you have that feeling from your teammates and you have that feeling for yourself, then it's such it's the most wonderful gift that you could ever have in football. And yes, undoubtedly, that was absolutely my best ever time. You made your debut for Scotland in 1983 against Switzerland. What are your memories of this? Uh, again, I think I had the broken leg. I'd missed out on the opportunity to play the World Cup in 82. I don't know if I would have made it anyway. I would have been fit enough because Scotland had a very strong uh, group then up front. Joe Jordan, Kenneth Gleish, Alan Brazil. Uh, Andy Gray, uh, Stevie Archibald, with a lot of really influential players playing at the top level at the time. But I missed out, obviously, because he had a broken leg, which defined that time. 
So trying to get back to that level was important to me. And Danny McGrain, my, my great Celtic teammate, in my opinion, in my lifetime, uh, maybe not the greatest talented Celtic player ever, but the greatest Celtic influence ever, certainly with me, uh, just an outstanding individual, an outstanding footballer. He had a broken leg. He had diabetes. He had a fractured cheek. He knew how to come back from impossible situations. And he was dragging me along to get me back and help me get to the standard we both believed we could get to. And then there was this dream of mine that, I'm not saying that Scotland wasn't a massive dream. It's a wonderful thing to represent your country. But Celtic was a proper stronger catch. But then there was the King Kennedy Leaf syndrome that says, could you play with this guy? Could you actually be on the park with this guy? And there I was in the same dressing room with him, uh, nervous. Uh, I'd met him very briefly before it, but very, very nervous. And, and I, I always, always called him King. When I was a supporter, I called him King Kenny. Uh, when I'm with him, I still call him King, even now. And in the dressing room, and then we were coming out the dressing room to go to kick-off, and he gave me a little clip across the ear and says, now you can stop all this nonsense about the King. You have to play well, and I have to play well. So let's get the job done and enjoy this game together. And that was it, and we just got on with it. I scored a, a very good goal, and he was first one of the first over to congratulate me. But playing with him that night, we didn't win, we, we got a 2-2 draw, was just a magical thing. When you walk out the dressing room and you're trying to explain to your family and your friends that you've who you've just played with and what he's saying to you, how he's coaching you along during the game, how he's helping you, was just, it's, it's quite, it's breathtaking that these things can happen to you. It's, it's just a treat for anyone who ever makes that level. That really is a memorable moment right there. Yeah. Um, you were selected for Scotland in the 1986 World Cup in Mexico. What was it like to be selected and what was the build-up to the World Cup like? Well, the build-up was strange because I was at Arsenal. I thought I was playing quite well at that time at Arsenal. Jockstein, who obviously I knew from my days at Celtic, although I didn't play under him as a manager, uh, but he'd watched me as a junior. Uh, you know, Jock had given me my debut for the national team. And I don't think Jock quite liked what was happening at Arsenal. Arsenal was, it was quite tough for me at Arsenal. We weren't a passing side. But I came back to front and I found it quite difficult, to be honest, for a spell to fit into the way they played. And it was very inconsistent. And I don't think Jock was convinced that I'd picked the right team. And I was struggling because of that. I thought at the time, in the build-up to the World Cup, I was actually coming into good form at Arsenal. Unfortunately, Big Jock passed away after a dramatic night at Wales when Scotland qualified or went into playoffs. And uh, Alex Ferguson took temporary charge with a magical man who's just passed away recently called Walter Smith, a great Rangers manager. And between the two of them, when we were going to the World Cup build-up, Fergie started to come and watch. He was Aberdeen manager at the time. But Fergie started to come and watch me a few times at Arsenal. And he got me to play in a, a B-select. And 
we played Israel away in a friendly, I think it was. And he'd said to me, I don't know why you're not getting picked for the team, but I feel as if you think, I think you've got a real chance of being in now. So I honestly didn't think he was, I was going to make it. I thought there was too many players in front of me. But gradually there was a little belief that I had an opportunity now. And then when we got together, unfortunately for me on a personal level, King Kenny had a knee issue and he couldn't make it. He had to pull out because he had to go and get some surgery. And I wouldn't say that that was the, the dismissal that, that helped me in, but it certainly gave me a little bit of room to get into the team. And I, I think if I'm being perfectly honest, which I like to be, is I was probably about fourth choice of the strikers. Frank McAvenny, my great mate, he was probably in front of me. Graham Sharp at Everton was probably in front of me. There was a guy, Stevie Archibald, who's made a member of Barcelona and Spurs. And I was probably down the pecking order. But when we got to the build-up to Mexico, the the fitness and the high-altitude training, which was very, very demanding, I felt myself get really fit. And my conference started to return with Fergie's belief and Walter Smith coaching. And all of, all of a sudden, I was I started the first game against Denmark, who were a wonderful football team. And they, they beat us 1-0, but it was a very, very close match. Unfortunately, I got injured in that game with about 15 minutes to go, and it kind of ruined it for me. But to have turned it round from being about fourth or fifth choice into actually performing as a number one in that World Cup was was something that I'll always live with me. I, you know, as you can probably tell, the Scottish national team struggles to make these competitions now, and at least I can turn around and say, I didn't get too many caps, but I did make a World Cup and I did play in it. You came... Bottom. Bottom of your group. Do you think Scotland should have done better at the World Cup? No, definitely. We should have done. I mean, at the time, what they, they called it, they called it the group of death because we had Germany, who were always tremendously strong in, in World Cups. Then we had uh, Denmark, who at the time were one of the best European teams world. And there was high hopes that they would go all the way in the competition. Great speed. They, they, Michael Loudrop, who was one of the superstar footballers at the time, made an absolutely brilliant football team. And that was my first game up. And we had the third team in the group was Uruguay, who South Americans always liked the heat of Mexico. So we were at a disadvantage, but they were very physical. So we, we lost, obviously, the 1-0 to Denmark. And we lost, unfortunately, 2-1 to Germany. But sometimes with the points, you can still qualify as third place because of if you can win one game. And we had Uruguay to play in the last game. And it was between us or them to finish bottom or third. And it was a brutal game of football. I was on the bench trying to get fit. Absolutely over-the-top physical. And we missed a couple of chances in the last five minutes. And that would have put us through. Uh, so we should have done, yes. We missed out on that. We had an opportunity, best probably opportunity that Scotland could have had to have made the last qualifying uh, section. Uh, so it was a it was a big blow to us that we didn't get over the line. Uh, so that was a sad one to take. But sometimes you can only look at yourself and say, we, 
we we disappointed. We should have won against Uruguay, and we didn't. And we ended up bottom. And we left again first. It was quite embarrassing for a little spell, but it was one of them that we knew we'd missed a golden opportunity. In 1983, there was a number of clubs trying to buy you, such as Liverpool, Man United and Milan. What was it about Arsenal that made you want to join them? Well, again, uh, the, the, the honest breakdown is I spoke to all those clubs and the one who undoubtedly were the most impressive was Liverpool. You know, we had Bob Paisley, Magical Man, Joe Fagan, the old famous uh, boot, boot room for people who can, who can remember Liverpool. If you watched the recent documentary about the boot room, these guys were all part of the Shankly history. And the genuine affinity, I always wanted to probably look at playing with Kenny already being there. Uh, and they were the best team, in my opinion, on, on the planet at that time. But the problem was, for me, that how do you come and fit into a team that you think is already the best, if not in the world, certainly in Europe, with the Russian rush up front? You don't really need to change anything. And although I had great confidence in my ability, my old teammate Frank McGarvey came back from Liverpool to join Celtic about two years before that. And he didn't play, he didn't get a game. He just sat on the bench. Uh, and I thought, I don't know if I could put up with that. I'm 21. I want to play every week. I'm used to playing every week. I've been playing in Europe. And that was the only negative thing I had with Liverpool that was putting me off. That I just thought, I don't know. And even if I did get in the team, you know, I wasn't going to replace King Kenny for a while. He had another four or five years to play. And Rush was one of the best finishers I'd ever seen. And I think his record still proves that. So that was the difficulty I had with that. Manchester United, I wasn't overly enamoured by their manager at the time, Ron Atkinson. I didn't think he was the right guy for me. didn't seem convinced where what position he was looking to play me. Uh, Inter Milan, I was a little bit scared of Italy. I wanted to probably still go out and socialise a little bit. Whereas in Italy, I heard that life was quite private and, you know, a, a bit more boring, if you like that you had to be under a little bit more scrutiny. I don't think I was ready for that. In all honesty, I didn't want to leave Celtic at that stage. I wanted to stay at least another two or three years and see where it took me. I wanted to stay there. But Celtic decided they wanted... Clubs controlled you then. So Celtic decided that they wanted to sign me. What impressed me about Arsenal was Don Howe at the time. A lovely, lovely man. Brilliant coach. But at the time, they were trying to change from boring Arsenal to a little bit more exciting, entertaining Arsenal. They were talking about signing uh, Chelsea's great Ray Wilkins. We were also trying to bring Liam Brady back from Italy. He was obviously a, an Arsenal legend. So it sounded as if they were trying to build all the right things and do the right things to help my game and help Arsenal expand. But we never got any of those players. But I can honestly say this, only won one trophy at Arsenal if I were assigned for Liverpool over that four year period I probably would have won about 11 more medals just because of the success of that team so I do regret that in a big way but I do not have a bad word to say about Arsenal I love the fans I love the club 
what they looked after me for, how they helped me. And I've got no complaints. I made my decision. I probably, in terms of success, made the wrong decision. But I do not have a negative thing to say about Arsenal as a club. Um, at the time, it was reported that you were the highest paid player in Britain. Do you remember how much you were earning? Yes, I do. And I don't think I was. Uh, at Celtic, I was on a £90 a week contract. Uh, I was probably expecting our top players were probably paid then about £300 a week. I was hoping that I would get up close to that. Obviously, that never materialised. The Celtic offered me to continue on £90 a week. And when I went to Arsenal and I spoke, Inter Milan were offering me something in the region of about £4,000 a week. All the English clubs were more or less £100,000 a year, which is roughly about £2,000 a week. So it's obviously quite a dramatic jump. But that was quite a lot of money for a footballer then. But of course, then you have to pay your, buy yourself someone to live, which lived, uh, London was tremendously expensive. So it, it was a game changer for me at the time. It never was about the money because all the clubs were, were offering me the same money. Uh, it was the choice I decided to make. But no, I don't think I would have been. I think there was probably a couple of players at Arsenal who were probably at least on the same. I think there was probably teams at Liverpool or players at Liverpool and maybe even Manchester United who potentially were, were on more than I was. But I would have been possibly one of the highest at that time. But I don't think I was the highest. But whether I was or not was never really the issue for me. It didn't matter. If you haven't already, then be sure to download our new app, Gold, the home of challenges. Post and take on challenges, call out your friends, and top leaderboards. Challenges can be about absolutely anything, so be as creative as you like. Be sure to follow our social media, too, for awesome giveaways. That's Gold. Did you find the move, move to us? Arsenal. Arsenal. Difficult. Different in terms of style, Jacob. So, um, did you find the move to Arsenal difficult and did the style of play suit you? Yeah. Uh, it's a very good question. When I first arrived, uh, one of my great mates was Graham Rex, who was a fabulously talented left-footed player. We had... A team full of internationals. Pat Jennings was a world-famous goalkeeper. Kenny Sanson, one of the best players I've ever played with. David O'Leary, uh, Graham Ricks. We had Tony Woodcock, England international up front. We had real good mix of footballers and it was only going to improve. We had some good young players coming through like the magical David Rocastle and Tony Adams. Uh, so we had a real good foundation. It just needed to work out as a team. And when we trained most days, it was quite a good passing entertainment that we, were, that we were working on and coaching on. But as soon as it came to the way that we played on a Saturday, by nature, the players fell into Arsenal are hard to beat. It was 60-yard passes up in the air, and I'm not very good in the air. Uh, so the style of play was really hard. I felt as if the ball was in the air all the time. So it kind of some days it was bypassing you. And I found it really difficult because at Celtic we were a passing team. 
and it came from midfield and through midfield and build up. Arsenal was was that little bit more long ball, if if you would like. And the game in England, other than the way that mainly Liverpool were playing, was about percentage football, as in, you know, knockdowns and pick up second balls. And I found that style of play dramatically hard. And I, there's no doubt about that. I think I scored two in my second game. I could I could not, for the life of me, find a goal in the home games at Highbury, mainly because of the style. And gradually, I just had to keep working through it. I also felt London tremendously lonely because once you finish training, you occasionally get a nice game of golf in. And, but most of the guys were married, but my teammates at Celtic live 10 minutes away or 15 minutes away. In London, they live about an hour or an hour and a half away. So everybody seemed to be miles and miles from each other. And I found that really, really tough and lonely. And I think it took me the best part of six months to try and overcome that. I'm quite a buoyant and outgoing guy. I find it easy to work in a dressing room and go on and have laughs. And the guys were good with me, but I just found it quite a lonely Solace place at times, and the style of play definitely, Jacob, absolutely was really, really hard to take. But then again, no individual is bigger than the team itself, so you try your best to to change and help. But it, it was a struggle, I have to admit. What game was better to play in the Glasgow Derby or the London Derby, and why? Well, but generally by a distance, by a distance, it's the Glasgow Derby and the Derby. At Glasgow, the atmosphere both at White Hart Lane and at Highbury at the time. I mean, Highbury was a fabulous old-fashioned style ground, only thirty-eight thousand, but a great atmosphere about it. The old derbies, I think, are special for different people and different reasons. The Glasgow Derby. Initially, when we played in Glasgow derbies, we used to always Celtic used to always register the crowd officially was sixty-seven thousand, but believe me. There was probably 90,000 people, and I'm not exaggerating, because it was mainly terracing. There was only one little stand there. It was all stand-up in PN gates. So we predominantly were playing in front of 90,000. So if you can imagine, you know, the scale of that, and Rangers would have 20,000. The noise and the drama, the build-up to it, was just deafening, uh, nerve-wracking. The Arsenal Spurs games were intense and, of course, vital for both both fans' bragging rights not to lose. But it felt less frantic. It wasn't quite 100 miles an hour. That You know, in the Glasgow derbies, it was very rare that the real talented players got a lot of kicks in the ball or a lot of touches in the ball. It tended to be the physical side was the winner or a little lucky break here and there. Whereas in the London derbies, I felt it was more about the creative players were more liable to have the edge in winning a football match. And I think because of that, that was the difference. Uh, Because of just the sheer pressure that was on in Glasgow and just because of the madness and the mayhem of it, it was always quite more dramatic no matter what happened. Fortunately, I had good records in both the derbies in terms of success and winning. But Glasgow derby is definitely quite, quite, 
by far. I mean, I mentioned it earlier to you that it's the best derby in, in the UK for me. And uh, so it's, it's certainly better than the London derby. You scored two goals in the League Cup final against Liverpool in 1987 to win at Wembley. What are your memories of that day? The memories of that day was being nervous again. We all knew how good Liverpool were. George uh, Graham had not long been to the, as the manager. George, being a fellow Scot, uh, had high hopes for the, the team. George had a certain style he was trying to change. There was more pace. There was more energy in the team. We were actually playing pretty well and pretty confident under George. But about five, maybe about two months before it, I'd actually slashed my whole kneecap at Nottingham Forest away. And I needed, I think it was something like stitches inside and outside was, was about nearly 60 stitches. I didn't only kind of uh, had, had a problem with some of the nerves in my kneecap. It was really just a, a wound but I was going to have to try and get healed and then stay in the team. I ended up, I think I missed two matches uh, with it because I was determined to try and make the final because I hadn't won anything at Arsenal. This, this was my first final with them. I was determined to prove that we could win something. So the build-up was good because I was back in the team. I felt confident again. My fitness was good. The one big worry was that Ian Rush always scored first. If Ian Rush scored first for Liverpool, Liverpool never lost. And Ian Rush scored first. And we all kind of looked at each other and go, oh, is that it? But under George Graham, I didn't always get on brilliantly with George individually. But there was a bit more spirit and a bit more fight within the team. I think part of that was the younger players who were there. And we just dug in. We, we worked away believing we could get in the, the game. First one for the equaliser. I actually missed a good chance just before it and I hit the post. Cross came back in and it was a tap and couldn't really miss it, to be honest with you. And then we're back in the game. Now, the second one was probably the luckiest goal I've ever scored in my life. Not just because it helped us win the trophy, but Perry Groves got down the left-hand side, cut it back, but it was a really, really slow pass. And I was about 10, 12 yards out. And I didn't hit it with much pace at all. I actually tried to side-foot it across into the other corner. And I do believe Bruce Grobelar would have saved it. But I think it deflected off the heel of Ronnie Whelan and spun. And the spin took it the other corner. And it just spun in. It was a very, very fortunate goal. And I said earlier, sometimes you need luck, even when you're playing well. And it was just one, one of those lucky moments for me. I always remember after the game, that Bob Wilson, who was a, an Arsenal goalkeeper, and he was working for the TV company at the time, but he was behind the goal, and he was jumping about like a 60-year-old with excitement. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a cracking day for me. But if I could just finish off that day when we won the Cup, we went round to where the Liverpool fans were, and... They weren't all there, but there must have been at least another five, ten thousand stayed there. And they all were they were applauding me when I came round as a gesture. And I thought that that will stay with me forever. Absolutely wonderful supporters. They were the best in the world at doing things like that. They had a great appreciation because they were the best team in the planet at the time. But they also showed a, a respect that if anybody else 
beat them, then they would say, OK, fair enough, you came from behind and beat us. What a gesture by the Liverpool fans it was that day. But it was just a lucky day for me. Apparently, Celtic tried to sign you back in 1988, but instead you joined Aberdeen. Why did you decide to join them? Well, I, the original, when Celtic came in in 88, I did want to sign for them, but George Graham at the time wanted me to stay on at Arsenal. So I decided that I was going to stay on at Arsenal for the, the time being. Celtic was trying to buy some players in and I don't know whether because in those days the players don't really find out because you know it's just the way that it's meant to be but I'd agreed to stay on at Arsenal with George Graham and I wasn't aware whether George has just said no you're not for sale or anything like that so in my opinion it just never materialised though I heard there was interest uh, in the end up, uh, if I'd have known what was going to happen, I would have been back to Celtic in a heartbeat. But I stayed there for another six months. But I only played, I think, two more games. George then decided that it wasn't to be for me and put me... Sometimes I didn't even get in the reserves. It just completely blew me out. And that was hard. And I just wanted to play football. And in 19... The, the, the end, I think, November, December... Brian Clough at Nottingham Forest tried to sign me. Jim Smith, who was manager at Derby, tried to sign me. And I was quite keen to go to work under Cloughy at Nottingham Forest. But George wouldn't let me go uh, because they were in the top division and I might have come back and gave Arsenal a, a, a problem. So in the end, Aberdeen was available. And I, I gen again, I can be genuine here. I didn't want to go back to Aberdeen. I didn't want to go there. But I needed to play football. I wanted just to go back and play football. It wasn't about money for me. It wasn't about prestige. I needed to go and start playing football again. And that's why I made the, made the move back to Aberdeen. I ran out of choices. The timing wasn't good on it. It wasn't to be my first choice. But I went there and I gave it the best shot. And at least we ended up winning two trophies. After football, you then became a pundit. How did that move come about and do you enjoy it? I I honestly had a great time in punditry. I mean, that, that time has now come to an end. I mean, I still do little bits and pieces here and there, but I'm not really on the, the TV and things like that uh, anymore. Uh, that's just the way it went. It, it came by chance uh, through Scottish television uh, because I was back at... Celtic for a second time and then I was really interested in becoming a young coach but I wasn't really getting any significant offers to, to to really concentrate I didn't really believe in the coaching certificates too much I just wanted to be given an opportunity with younger players and, and see where it would take me and that was my plan originally and then I was approached by uh, a guy at Scottish Television called Jerry McNee, who asked me would I be interested and started to come in and give an opinions on build-up to football matches and do some live broadcasting. And that's really how it started. And I started to quite enjoy it because you actually feel as if you're still part of it for a strange reason. The one thing you always miss is the dressing room. You miss your old teammates. You miss the fun. You miss the, the nerves. 
uh, you miss the anger, you miss the, the, the laughs. But this was as close as I think you felt as if you were still involved. And of course, when you're a pundit, you can get many things wrong and you'll get some things right. But you don't really have a bad game because you're just sitting there watching the game, giving your opinion. So I had a great time doing it. It was hard sometimes because, if you, if I'm being honest again, sometimes you're critical of all of all teammates and old friends, and you know it won't go down too well. So you kind of lose some friendships because of that, and it can be quite stressful. But if you believe in that, you have to give your opinion, and that's why you're doing it. Then you have to commit wholeheartedly to it, or else the public would kind of know and assess it. You're just saying it for the sake of you know, patronising people. I don't believe in that side of it. But when I eventually got to, to Sky in 98 and I was still doing Scottish Premier League football for about four years, but then they moved me into the top level of the English Premier League, that was just game-changing. It was just, you were talking about some of the best talents I'd ever come, came across. I mean, I'm an Arsenal fan, as you know. People like Henri, people like Petit, uh, Vieira, you know, great bear camp. And then you had the people like Cantona coming, Liverpool, Stevie Gerrard. There was just so many great, great players who were coming to the English Premier League. And it was the time that I just joined. It was just a fabulous, fabulous time to be working on football. Did you enjoy your time on soccer today? Yeah, I did. I. It was the, the best show ever. I mean, I really enjoyed doing live football matches uh, and doing co-commentaries with it because you feel as if you you maybe see something that the, the public haven't seen yet so you can give an opinion. You know, it's easy for people to say, oh, did you see him cross it there from the right and it was a header? Well, everybody can see that. You want to try and give them something a little bit different. What, what do they need to do to, to score a goal? What do they need to do to get back in the game? And I really enjoyed that side of it. But the Soccer Saturday thing, I, I originally when I started, I was with the wonderful George Best, uh, one of the true greats of all time. Rodney Marsh, who was quite a strong character. A great friend of mine, Frank McClintock, ex-Arsenal captain. And these were guys quite a bit older than me. They had better experience than me. But we had great fun doing it. And the host, who's still the host, Jeff Sterling, who's just the most fun guy and the most passionate football fan you could ever wish to meet. And how you can do that with still being a Hartlepool and still is a Hartlepool fan, it's quite, it's quite breathtaking. And he's genuine as, as you can ever find. But we had great fun with that. But I think when we started to get in the essence of Phil Thompson joining us, younger guys like Mark Letizzi and, of course, Paul Merson, we became that regular five that I think and Chris Kamara and Alan McAnally, who were reporting at the time, it was always just great fun about it because no one can see what we're talking about. But I think everybody could tell we were enjoying it so much. It was great fun. We were passionate about it. And it was just the greatest show ever to work on. We were very, very blessed to have that opportunity that you find something that the people like and you are part of it and part of the team. And it was just, it was the nearest we ever got back to being in that heartbeat and fun of a dressing room without ever really having a bad day and not winning. 
So it, it was the most pleasurable experience. In in 2020, you left Soccer Saturday. Why did you leave the show? Well, it was really Sky that, that put an end to that. It wasn't really my choice. We obviously all, all suffered through the pandemic. So when I was starting back, uh, the, there was no office that we could all meet in. I was still based in Glasgow, so even travel was 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 pretty scarce. So most of the stuff that we were doing was from a Glasgow studio. It became a bit like kind of soulless, but at least it was a start back. And then I think what we decided and what we knew was coming, that Sky themselves they started to think about making changes. Uh, and that's fine. That happens in every industry. It happens to lots of different people, whether they're good reasons or bad reasons. But what I can generally say is that they may not have handled it very well, but the one thing I can say is that I had a long run. I had a great run. I was blessed to, to have worked on it with some great people. And uh, I had my time, and I can respect that. So, you know, no no criticism. Only, the only criticism I didn't like the way a phone call can change that. But other than that, it was just a great time. And I did have a long time. You know, I was over 20, 20, I think it was 23 years with Sky in total. So that was a long run I had at it. I do miss it. I miss I miss my friends. But we, we, we are on tours now and we're doing some stuff together. So we do still catch up and talk about them. But it was a great, great time. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. Really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Charlie. We really enjoyed speaking with you, and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Well, thank you, all of you. Thank you very much. I think you are doing a fabulous job. Continue enjoying it, and ask as many questions as you can of any sports person because the information you can use and it helps people, and it's great that people are following you. I wish you every success. It's been an absolute pleasure. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.